Hi everybody, Duncan Green here with a weekly roundup of posts on from poverty to power. Um, I suppose it's, it's quite good at the moment, isn't it? The days are getting longer, the Winter Olympics are starting, my wife's nephew is competing for Australia in a, a weird event called mogul hopping or something, which seems to involve um, bouncing up and down and then doing ridiculous um, somersaults in the air. Um, the rugby's starting in Europe, um, which I, was one of my weaknesses from having grown up in a rugby playing part of the UK. So, um, you know, lots to, um, lots to enjoy, including things on the blog. So let me get back to business and talk you through what's, what's going on there. Um, started with links I liked. Um, often there's a lot of funnies on the links I liked, and there's a few this, this, this week. But actually, I think I'll start with a serious one. Will countries ever learn how to do fuel subsidy reform well? Really nice piece, um, uh, partly yeah, linked to the meltdown in Kazakhstan from Anit Mukherjee and Alan Gelb at the Centre for Global Development. Um, <clears throat> the backstory here is that, you know, people who are worried about climate change say just cut fuel subsidies. There's no, you know, there's no reason not to. Fuel subsidies tend to benefit the middle class and rich more. Um, they're disastrous in terms of uh, um, re you know, reducing emissions. It's a no-brainer, just do it. And then we've seen time and time again, and research from Naomi Hussain and others at the at IDS have shown this, that when governments do cut subsidies, all hell breaks loose. There's massive riots, governments are overthrown, they often backtrack. You know, So what they're looking, what, what Mukherjee and Gelb are looking at is, okay, how do you do it right? And it turns out it can be done, but it requires, and I quote, political commitment, openness to engage in public dialogue, building consensus among stakeholders and powerful vested interests, setting up implementation systems, and working across different government ministries, departments, and agencies. So you basically need to be quite a sophisticated, well-functioning and democratic government to even stand a chance. And of course, a lot of the places which are scrapping fuel subsidies are not that. And therefore, you're always going to have this kind of political upheaval. And people who are advocating for fuel subsidies need to think about that when they when they advocate. The next post was um, uh, called Thinking and Working Politically. What have we learned since 2013? And this is a paper from Graham Teske, who's one of my favorite writers on in this area. Um, for those who don't know him, Graham is a, a classic sort of insider, outsider within the aid sector. He did long stints at DFID, uh, at DFAT, uh, the Australian uh, agency, and he now works at APT, a management consultants. And from this po vantage point, he's been one of the main proponents of thinking and working politically right through this 10-year period that he's writing about. So this is kind of living history thing. Um, and his stock in trade is saying, don't talk theory to me. Tell me what to do to make my programs work better. So he's got that real practitioner focus, which I think um, is very helpful when lots of other people are waving their hands a lot. Um, so the paper is partly the biography of an idea. So there's a timeline, moments, key documents, policy wins and the evolution of TWP. Um, and it just brought home to me how many seminars I missed in exotic places. I, I could say it was because I was worried about climate change. But probably it's just because I didn't have a proper travel budget. Um, but a lot of these, you know, there's a series of very key moments when the TWP movement, as it essentially is, evolved. And he charts that. 
Um, but the other part is, is, is a kind of more like a why change hasn't happened lament because Graham thinks that TWP has got lost in the maelstrom of the wider, largely negative changes in the aid sector. I think it's a great summary and I'll definitely be recommending it. So let's skip the timeline and do um, some of the lessons he draws. First one, 2013 now seems like ancient history. The differences in geopolitical and national context could hardly be more different. It is no exaggeration to say that DFID sat astride the donor world and was widely admired for its consistency, coherence and technical excellence. Down under, AusAid was explicitly modelling itself on DFID. And now AusAid and DFID are no more, and that is ancient history. Second point, the geopolitical environment has changed. China has continued its inexorable rise. Uh, national interests dominate. Thomas Hobbes is back in fashion. The domestic political economy in many donor countries is less supportive of aid, and they are generating distinctive and mutually exclusive narratives. For example, Black Lives Matter and decolonizing aid on the one hand, and the populist sloganeering of global Britain and America first on the other. Third point, these trends have had implications for all aid, aid agencies, most notably for the, the UK and Australia, which are the two that Graham knows best. Less attention is now being paid to the underlying issues of governance. Um, further and of deeper concern is that the dominant culture in foreign affairs departments seems to dismiss the idea that governance advisors have much to offer anyway. Indeed, I would note three trends as development agencies are asset stripped. Downgraded, the critically important but unglamorous work of program design, review and evaluation has been downgraded and it is increasingly contracted out to consultants. Degraded, in-country frontline technical policy discussions with partners has been degraded. Government to government discussions over technical issues now don't happen or, they do, or if they do, it's through outsiders like the consultants. The things that have been upgraded is the emphasis on the here and now, the transactional, the soundbite, the announceable. You know, this is ministers send word down. I need some announceables for this day or this meeting or whatever, which are just kind of um, not thought through. Just look, we're going to spend 10 million pounds on X just to get in the newspapers or on media or on social media. So this is uh, he draws 10 lessons from this. It's apologies for the listicle, but that's that's how he wrote the piece. One. Thinking and working politically has been overwhelmed by changes in the international context, as I said earlier. Two, the organisational culture and DNA of formal government aid departments have major implications for their interest in and ability to think and work politically. So government, governance departments have been massacred in the mergers, giving the lie to the increasing use of TWP language in aid documents. The practice of TWP has not been localised. Um, so it's still stuck in the Western donors. It's now commonplace, but not common practice. So you're getting TWP washing, which is everywhere in donor policies. Um, but actual, what actually is happening is what Andrew Natsios calls the frenzy of results and a whole bunch of things which work against the TWP in practice. So a strange sort of divorce between the language and the reality. We're successful at the project moment, at project level, TWP has metamorphosed into adaptive management in practice. And I must say, I've increasingly have been using the word of the words, uh, the phrase adaptive management to describe things rather than TWP. 
And that's because adaptive management is less likely to frighten people, the political paymasters, than TWP, which is a thinking and working politically is a bit of a sort of breast-beating approach within the aid sector. Look, I'm political, you know. Um, it struggled to make inroads into sector-specific programmes, which is where the big money is, health, education, infrastructure. Uh, the notable exception being gender rights work, where gender rights and TWP have come together well. Um, you need organisational structures and staffing specifically tailored for this. Uh, to, as Graham says, only if we learn as we go can we adapt in real time. Um, but yet, in the case of DFAT, which is the Australian Foreign Affairs Ministry, the number of governance specialists has dropped from 30 in 2013 to just one today. So follow the money and you'll see just how, how bad it looks um, uh, uh, in Graham's view. It has to be incentivized by donors at the procurement and design stages and then enable the delivery. So all the unsexy bits of the aid system have to buy in or the, the unsexy bits will block progress and that's not happening. Ninthly, as they say, um, TWP has led to a greater appreciation of both formal and informal sources of knowledge, including valuing local knowledge. So this is a positive. So don't just rely on fly-in, fly-out consultants who don't really know much about the country. Appreciate local knowledge, both within your staff and uh, among local partners. But then that 10th point, that diplomatic colleagues remain unimpressed with TWP. There was, this was supposed to be a silver lining, you know, the merger between AusAid and, and the Foreign Affairs Ministry. I mean, all these diplomats come and say, yes, of course, thinking working politically is what we do. We're going to back you. Hasn't happened. They don't actually believe that aid people know how to do this or they understand it differently. So my overall impression has been that, yeah, seen from the vantage point of 2022, uh, certainly in Graham's eyes, and I think I probably agree with most of what he says, thinking of working politically has won some battles, but has lost the war. Um, and if you're looking for a straw to clutch, I guess you could say that a lot has been learned and that when the political pendulum swings back, um, we can draw on that and you know make aid work better. But I think that's a slight counsel of despair. Um, but some of the comments on the blog, and there have been quite a few, were more positive than that. So if you are um, you know, depressed by what I'm saying and want a more positive read, do go and check out the, um, uh, the comments as well. The other two uh, posts for the week were from um, two, two of my students from last year, um, Charlie Batchelor and Nina Newhouse. Um, both super smart, really interesting um, people. And they got very interested in the lecture and the reading around new and old power on the use of digital uh, uh, activism, uh, digital media in activism. Uh, <clears throat> and they've written actually a four part blog for uh, uh, global policy and I'm reposting it uh, in slightly shortened form. So I'll give you the, uh, the headlines on this. Um, so the introduction, the first post is an introduction and then the second post is there taking the Flint water protests in the US as an example. So the introduction, academic scholarship has been slow to reach a consensus on what the internet and its associated digital tools, i.e. social media, mean for how activists can make, make, make change happen. Indeed, on few issues are commentators so divided as on the internet's change-making potential. Those in favour see it as a vehicle to extend offline movements to new and diverse audiences, transcending the limitations of space and time. 
The revolutionary spirit was fueled, uh, which fueled the 2011 Arab Spring, for example, was almost exclusively enabled by social networks and smartphone technology. More broadly, the unprecedented access to information that the internet generates allows citizens internationally to demand and claim their rights and entitlements from those in power. Corrupt, inefficient or profit-driven service providers can increasingly be made more responsive and accountable by being named and shamed online. After all, even the biggest, most opaque conglomerates are only an embarrassing leak or legal exposure away from having their credibility and profitability undermined. Very nice writing, can I just say. Not everyone is so optimistic, however. First, regarding the internet's potential to extend off offline movements, Malcolm Gladwell famously posits that the revolution will not be tweeted. The idea being that digital activism cannot produce among its participants the strong interpersonal ties that traditional forms of activism can. Rather, participating digitally involves little more than liking, sharing, donating, clicking, frequently in self-interested ways. It requires very little time, effort or risk. And therefore, when the going gets tough and direct action is required, people won't be sufficiently motivated to act. They'll already be moving on to the next issue. Second, despite the unprecedented information access that the internet generates, academics remain equally cynical as to its capacity to truly overcome repressive states. Uh, or, but rather, as Nanjala Nyabola, the Kenyan writer, suggests, better technology does not necessarily mean better democracy. Rather, elites in many cases use it to their advantage, seeking to influence elections and engineer public consensus via a Machiavellian combination of digitally enabled data collection and computational modelling. And this negative read of digital activism and the power of the state to, to kind of take over digital and use it for bad ends has definitely grown relative to the optimistic um, narrative around the internet in the last few years. In this context, Tims and Hyman's New Old Power Framework, and this is from the book New Power, Old Power, which is a great book, totally recommend it, offers something new. Put simply, the framework suggests that society today operates according to two distinct forces, old and new power. Old power works like a currency. It is closed, inaccessible, leader-driven and held by only a few. The aim is to gather as much of it as possible and hoard it, using it to ultimately control others or to spend at key moments. In contrast, new power works like a current. It is open, participatory and made by many. The aim is not to hoard it, but to channel it, encouraging and taking advantage of surges. But what does this actually contribute to the debate around digitally mediated activism? First, we have to understand that new power differs from old power along two key axes. The models they use to gather and exercise power and the values they adhere to. New power models are fundamentally peer-driven and based on participation, while old power models are based on consumption and the unequal exchange of value. Correspondingly, new power values emphasise collaboration, a do-it-ourselves ethic, and informal networked governance, while old power values rely instead on exclusivity, professionalism and representative governance. Organisations and movements are therefore defined by Tims and Hymans according to their use of new power models and values, think Wikipedia, old power models and values, think Apple, or a combination of the two, think Facebook. 
So they've got a very nice grid in the book, which they reproduce on the blog, of putting all these different digital players on a on a two by two um, about values and uh, um, uh, uh, models, uh, which which helps disentangle the the, the digital world. Tim's and Hyman's thus arguably provide a new way of understanding the change-making potential of digital tools. And then the, the second post, uh, I, I'm going to cut short now um, because I'm running running a bit over, but it's a very good post. The second post is applying this to a particular case, which I thought was really interesting, uh, the, the, the case study. It's, a, it's the case study of that awful story in Flint um, on, of polluted water. So a bit of background for those who've, uh, who've forgotten. So the Flint water crisis was a public health emergency that began in 2014, when in a bid to cut costs, Michigan State Governor Rick Snyder made the decision to switch the city's water supply from Lake Huron to the River Flint. In the following year, residents complained about the taste, smell and colour of the water, with many beginning to exhibit dermatological conditions, especially among children. Eventually, more than a year after residents had been drinking and washing in the water, scientists were able to confirm the extremely high presence of lead in the city's supply. The WHO defines anything over 5,000 parts per billion of lead as hazardous. The water in Flint was found to contain 13,000 parts per billion. It's estimated that 6 to 12,000 children were exposed to lead poisoning. And the point, uh, yeah, and, and this is not not an accident. Flint is, has long been one of the poorest citizens in America. Many of its socioeconomic problems are the result of rapid deindustrialization in the 1960s and decades of fiscal conservatism and underinvestment. And 57% of Flint residents are African-American. So the crisis is a powerful example of environmental racism, which basically says that, yeah, environmental damage is often most focused on the poorest and or uh, uh, the, the, the uh, ethnic minority areas in a country. So given these precedents, not surprisingly, news coverage was pretty thin. Um, when it did arrive, the coverage depicted Flint as a lost cause, an inevitable victim of crime, corruption and poverty. And there was zero input, almost zero input from residents. So mainly people came in when they heard about the lead and interviewed city officials and government sources who were responsible for the decision that led to the crisis. The citizens were just relegated to the position of victim. This is where it gets interesting because this is where digital kicks in. In response to this media coverage and its dominant discourse of the water wasn't that bad. Thousands of Flint residents took to social media to show the world what life in Flint was really like. They shared testimonies using the hashtag Flint Forward, FWD, and a Facebook group called Humans of Flint to display and celebrate the positive aspects of life in Flint. In this way, they resisted their labeling as victims and carved out a new narrative for themselves as people with hope, love, and happiness like anyone else. This allows them to bridge the gap between their experience and how it has been represented in the media. Rarely in a crisis do victims have such opportunity to communicate their humanity and agency. So what does this mean for an activism of the marginalised? More than anything else, the activism formed a sort of alternative storytelling that was led by citizens and which resisted the power of the mainstream media to control the narrative. As a result, in Flint, no longer were journalists the gatekeeper of what is and isn't newsworthy. 
Rather, by harnessing the uniquely connective and accessible potential of online social media platforms, Flint's community was able to construct their own truth, reclaim some power in how they are portrayed, and meaningfully contribute to global discussions. And the same has been observed for marginalised communities around the world. Inuit in Canada, you know, I've seen examples in many other countries. So what does the new of Hauer framework bring to the case? Well, back to Gladwell. You know, the, the, the new power um, digital activism has been criticised for failing to generate meaningful buy-in among its participants. And um, the authors think that Flint proves, on the contrary, that new power can be drawn directly from and influence the material relations of everyday life. And this is, the, I think, for me, the key point of the piece. Um, unlike other digitally driven movements such as BLM and Me Too, umbrella movements that maintain the same meaning across places and communities, Flint's online activism was rooted in a distinct and specific sense of place and collective identity that was unique to the material experience of living in Flint. In this way, it can be seen as an online extension of the real world and a way of enhancing the bonds between the people who live there. Flint's Twitter users were not, thus not simply tweeting about Flint, but were participating in its, parti in its liberation in a very real way. So I thought that was really interesting. Um, I'm not going to go in uh, uh, further. Um, they do uh, acknowledge, however, at the end, despite all this, you know, and the, you know, the, a big, uh, very powerful um, counter narrative coming out of Flint. Despite all this, residents still face an uncertain future with long term health complications and little sign of financial remuneration. Many still even rely on bottled water. In this light, we are forced to ask how success successful an episode of change is this really? Is this a predictable shortcoming of new power? What could the movement have achieved if it had representation in the corridors of power? Could it have translated the online movement into more formal legislation, bills or Senate action? Yes, this is why I love teaching the LSE. Students asking the right questions and then going out and becoming, yeah, and, and going back to activism with and, and being really smart and you know, having read all these great books. And on that, Upbeat notes, I shall leave you for this week. Talk to you next week. Bye.